They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is B. Jemine, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome to episode 28 of Bede vs. The Living Dead, the podcast, where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead, across all media. Yep, that's it everybody, the Christmas season is now over, Today is New Year's Eve, so yep, this is the very last episode of 2023. It's been quite a big year for the podcast, and I'll go into my thank yous later on in the episode. But in the meantime, though, we'll continue on with this very special final episode for the year. And I'm very excited about this one. But before we get to it, I have two very awesome guests who are joining me for this episode and one is a returning guest and the other is a first time guest first up of course is someone who hasn't been on the show for quite a while but she is making her long awaited return to the show and it's someone who i'm trying the best to make my friend but she always keeps resisting my friendship and that of course is my good friend beatrix harper hello b how are you and welcome back to Bead vs the living dead oh yeah you again how are you how are you i'm pretty good thanks uh it has been quite a busy few weeks given with christmas and everything and a new Mm -hmm. year is is almost upon us i can't believe 2024 is right around the corner and uh i'm excited where this show is going to go for the next year and i do have some exciting stuff planned for it but what about yourself b how you been going oh i've uh I've been trucking. <laughs> That's all I can say, really. <laughs> um, I uh, my my circles have not quite been the same as yours, but I have certainly been busy in my own right. But that nobody here needs to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been a while since you've been on the show because the last time yes. you were on this very podcast was all the way back on episode six. So I'm very excited mm-hmm. that you have fight made your long-awaited return to the show and and for the topics we're going to be talking about for this episode. Well, I'm very glad to be back. Thank you so much for having me again. Well, you're always welcome back on the show anytime, B. But we're not alone on this podcast. We also have oh, our no. second guest who is making his debut appearance on the show. And he is the co-host of the podcast Failure to Franchise. And that is Trevor Snyder. Hello, Trevor. How are you? Welcome to Bead vs. the Living Dead. 
Hello. Oh, thank you so much. Hello. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. From one fellow Return of the Living Dead part two supporter to another, Bead. Thank you for, for having me on. Uh, indeed, indeed. Also, uh, yes. It, that episode in particular, not to toot my own horn, got a lot of downloads this year. I think a lot of people were very curious to hear the, the discussion on that film because everyone talks about Return of the Living Dead and as well as Return of the Living Dead 3, but nobody ever yeah. really talks about the second part, which is kind I of agree, but I think I think there's a lot of people like us who saw it as a kids and grown up with a, an affinity for it. But but no, but uh, beyond that, um, definitely thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited too. I've, I've been a big fan of the show since you started it up and I found it and very excited to get to add my voice to all you and your fine guests. So Definitely, about definitely. one of my favorite movies of all, or actually my favorite movie of all time, *The Living Dead*, which is why it I reached did. out to you in the first place. Well, I appreciate that, and I like if anyone out there who's listening to the show is interested in coming on to talk about all things George A. Romero's *Living Dead* series with me, uh, reach out and definitely uh, we'll organize for you to be on the, the on an episode. But before we actually get to the topic at hand today, uh, Trevor, since you are a first-time guest on this show, mm -hmm. i got to ask you a very important question, and it's the question I ask every new guest that comes on this show, and that, of course, is, uh, Trevor, do you remember the first time you saw the original 1968 version of Night of the Living Dead? And given that you just said that it's your all-time favorite film, I'm very curious to hear this story. Yeah, I mean, I knew this question was coming, of course, and I was thinking about it. And I know a lot of your guests really remember the very specific age they were when they first saw it at the time they saw it. It's a little tougher for me because I was very young when I first saw mm. it. So I couldn't tell you exactly how young I was. I only remember how it how I felt when I first saw it. But I was very young. You know, I, I was born in 80, so I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s. And I think the 80s was like a great time to be a young horror fan. You know, everyone talks mm. about like the, like the 60s and the 50s as being like the monster kid boom. And I do sometimes wish I'd been alive during that. But I think the 80s was great, too, because, you know, that was a time when they were like merchandising Freddy Krueger as like a kid's toy, you know, all the slasher films <laughs> were in, the, in, the, in the video stores. So as a kid, you could still like really be into horror back then. And I remember, I don't know if this, this is a big thing here in the States. I don't know if you had them in Australia or not, but you could go to the public libraries and we had these really cool books that were like all the old Universal Monster movies told in like storybook form where they just had the pictures from the movies and then told the, the, the story in like a more simplified text form. So I, I, I read a lot of those before I actually saw the movies. Um, so I got really, really into horror, really young, started reading Stephen King way before I should. And, <laughs> and I don't, so that's, I don't really remember. I'm sure I was probably in like late elementary school or early middle school when I first saw The Living Dead. But what I do remember is it was one of the first horror movies I saw as a kid that absolutely terrified me, but I immediately wanted to watch it again. It was, there was something about it where it's like, why did that scare me so much? Why is this getting to me? I need to kind of like go back to it. And that's what I did. I spent the rest of my life. Like I, there's no movie I've watched more times. I became quite obsessed with it. It really set me on a path of just being obsessed with the zombie genre in general. In the mid aughts, I wrote for a website, 411 Mania for a while. And four years in a row, I did a column called the, the October Zombie Thon, where I watched a zombie movie every day of October. So 31 different zombie movies. Did that for four years until like my mind couldn't take it anymore, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, became just obsessed with Diving Dead. The, obviously, as I got older, found the rest of the Romero films and just the rest of the zombie films that were out there at the time. Uh, that was when it was still kind of, you know, it didn't the pre-walking dead when it hadn't blown up yet um so you know trying, trying to track down the italian ones and everything 
And yeah, it's just, uh, I've always been chasing kind of that high. It's weird. Cause like that movie can still scare me. You know, there are still times I'll watch mm. it at the right time and it still can get to me. And then there are times where I watch it and it's just kind of on autopilot. Cause I've seen it so many times I can just recite it from beginning to end, mm. but it means, it means so much to me. And like, I was even lucky enough to, um, I think I told you about this in one of our text conversations, Bede, but I was lucky enough to meet, finally meet George Romero. Um, at what I believe was Ooh. maybe. I don't know for sure, but I think it might have been his last ever public appearance because I know he passed away in July of 2017 and I met him in April of 2017 at a horror convention. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, he was not he was looking kind of ill and they were kind of rushing people through the line very quickly. His interactions were very brief, so you could kind of get a sense. Mm. okay, but, you know, I still had a moment to just tell him how much the film meant to me. You know, I I had nothing to say that I'm sure. He hadn't heard thousands of times before, but I just wanted to tell him how much it meant to me. And it was a nice little moment. Got my picture with him, um, which, of course, is just like one of the highlights of my life. But yeah. And so I, I've I've really always been a huge fan of the movie. And then the reason I reached out to you is I'm also a really big uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a college professor. And one of my areas of like academic interest and study is transmedia and in particular like comic books. And I became really interested in like the transmedia aspect of the Living Dead franchise and George Romero's work in comics. And that kind of led us into me reaching out to you and even into this episode a little bit. So long winded story there. But yeah, that's that's <laughs> I, I couldn't I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen the movie, but it's a lot. But and I wish I wish I could remember the exact first time, but it was when I was young, too young, probably. <laughs> I think that's pretty much like, I guess, like the answer to all of us is watching this movie way too young. I mean, I've already yeah. mentioned this before <laughs> in previous episodes. I saw this in my mid teens when I was actually starting to get into horror. And I've already mentioned before that I enjoyed the film, but I hated the ending the first time I watched it because, you know, it was one of, up to that point, you know, I'd seen a lot of horror films that at least had the main character triumphing over evil by the end of it. But this was the one where pretty much uh, everyone dies at the end of it. So I guess my mind wasn't prepared for something like that, especially for someone like me so young. But yeah, I kind of felt the same way about um, Return of the Living Dead Free as well when I saw that but now as I've gotten older and gone back to both those films over time I've appreciated them a lot more especially this one even more so having uh done this uh podcast because I can tell you right now I all the stuff I have got into the original film and every other iteration of it throughout the last 28 episodes I could easily write a whole book about it that's how much (laughs) (laughs) research I've got into all of them yeah, and also, Trevor, you're one of the few people who have come on this show who has actually have met Jorge Romero in person. So I, I, I consider to be very, very uh, jealous about that. I've I've been very lucky to I've I've yeah I've not only met Romero but I've read I've met quite a few I met I've been able to meet John Russo Bill Hinsman mm-hmm. Judith O'Day Russell Striner Kyra Schoen and Judith Ridley so I've I've been very lucky Jeez. to to meet quite a few of them and uh, but yeah I think you just totally hit on it that that must have been it right when I was a kid that was probably the first horror movie I watched that was that nihilistic I'm sure that was a big part of like why it stuck with me because mm. like you said as a kid you know you're used to the good guys winning and I know yeah Ben uh, spoiler alert <laughs> Ben dying at the end as a kid that that blew my mind in, in such a way where I was just like I can't are you allowed to do that in a movie are you allowed to have the hero do that and then having that fun journey of having to especially when you're young having to watch it like five or ten times before you finally realize hey wait a minute Harry was right the whole time Ben was wrong you know and all those things that come to you <laughs> later on and yeah but what a journey with that movie it, it is and I'm kind of learning new things about that film every time especially mm-hmm. like because you're right even there are days when I'll watch it it's like you know what as a dipshit as Harry is he is kind of right it's kind of interesting kind of going back and forth with the different perspectives of the characters, the older you get and the more times 
uh, you see the film. But since you did mention about the living dead in comic book form, there's one aspect of this show in terms of media that I haven't covered when it comes to Night of the Living Dead is, of course, the comics. And there are quite a lot of Night of the Living Dead comic books out there in the world. And I'm going to be covering them in the future for this show. But for this episode of the show, we're going to be talking about two in particular that really stand out, which, of course, are Clive Barker's Night of the Living Dead London, and as well as Night of the Living Dead Barbara Zombie Chronicles, which Mm -hmm. I'm very excited to talk about both these comic books because even though, yes, they're totally polar opposites in terms of their approach to how they expand the world of Night of the Living Dead, but there's also a couple little similarities between them as well, which we'll get into in a bit. We might as well get straight to it and talk about the very first comic book for this episode, which, of course, is the 1993 two-issue miniseries Clive Barker's Night of the Living Dead London, which was written by Clive Barker and Steve Niles. And if that last name sounds very familiar, Steve Niles, of course, was the co-creator of the 30 Days of Night comic book series. And the comics were illustrated by Carlos Castros. And the plot summary for this comic book is Clive Barker's Night of the Living Dead London tells the tale of George A. Romero's zombie invasion from the perspective of the Archbishop of London, secure inside Buckingham Palace with the Queen and her offspring. Now, before we get into our thoughts on this comic book series, I have to say this right off the bat. This one was actually quite a late addition to the show because around this time last year because i was looking into night of the living dead comics and a couple of ones that i thought okay there's a couple of ongoing series and whatnot but then the uh, website bloodydisgusting.com released a, a column that was written by jason jenkins called back in 1993 clive barker put his own unique twist on george a romero with night of the living dead london and then my that kind of blew my mind when I read this article because I did not know that Clive Barker, the man behind so many classic horror novels and as well as the director of films such as Hellraiser and Nightbreed, actually created his own comic book miniseries set in the world of Night of the Living Dead. And when I heard about that, I immediately knew I had to talk about this for the show. And the fact that he co-wrote the story with... Uh, Steve Niles definitely was an even bigger selling point as well. So I was very intrigued to sit down and read this comic book in prep for the show. But uh, but before we get to my initial thoughts on it, uh, B, your thoughts on Clive Barker's Night of the Living Dead London. Okay, can I just say this? I, all right, well, here's the thing. Every, Almost every single horror fan will say the exact same thing by saying, I love Clive Barker. And I mean it. (laughs) Clive Barker is one of my favorite (laughs) creative minds in the horror sphere ever. I think one of my main reasons why I I love his work so much is just how transgressive it all is. It's just so, it goes to some really, really dark places you didn't even know were, you know, were in your mind. And when Barker broaches them, it's like, oh, Oh my God! What what is this? Oh wow! I I love it. It's disgusting, but I love it. And uh, the fact that he he actually put his name down to do this comic book 
and to tell it in his own unique way. And the fact that he had Stephen Niles, like, working with him, I mean, oh, holy shit. I, I remember when, when you told me about this and it's, I was like, oh, my God, I have to find this out because, like you, I had no idea this was a thing. And now I know it's a thing. It's one of my favorite things. And, <laughs> and uh, in, in saying that, there, there's something very darkly humorous about... um. That the fact that you you know you have the Archbishop of London in Buckingham Palace with the Queen and the royal family, it's is that not completely on brand with the the very dark satirical edge that Romero himself had when he when he made the first three dead films that that to me that falls that falls perfectly well within the universe and just reading the all the way through it and just experiencing Barker's take on this on this universe like through his through his own lens it was such a pleasure to read definitely definitely and uh Trevor your thoughts on Clive Barker's Night of the Living Dead London yeah I'm kind of with you and being surprised that this isn't more known today like that's kind of strange to me and I can only think it's maybe because the company came from Fantico is not a company that stuck around and it's not the easiest mm. thing to find anymore but yeah I mean I you mentioned that there's a lot of Night of the Dead comics I've read a lot of them and mm. in the whole entirety of Night of the Living Dead comics there's a couple highs and a lot of lows and I do think Night of the Living <laughs> Dead London is definitely one of the highs uh for exactly what B was getting to I mean it, it this represents exactly what you want to see when another author decides to tip like dip their toes into the Living Dead world is to merge their sensibilities, Romero's sensibilities, with what makes them special as an author. And I think a lot of Nightly Dead comics just go the easy route of trying to replicate Romero or, well, you know, maybe we'll talk about this later, doing silly things that have no place in there. But I think Clive Barker found a really clever way to bring his twisted sexuality, that transgressive spirit he was talking about, and really mix it with the satire of Romero. And I do think this book is just so, you know, it does things you wouldn't expect to see in the dead universe, but in a way that feels so Clive Barker that you're still okay with it. And and I know we'll talk about every aspect of it, but also I think visually this book is beautiful um, in a way that a lot of these Living Dead comics often aren't. I love the artwork in this, which I know we'll talk about as well. So this was this was a definite, uh, I remember I did read this when it first came out and I hadn't thought about it in years. Like to your point, I even just kind of forgot about it. Even as a Clive Barker, Night Living Dead fan, you know, I just forgotten this book existed. So I'm glad to have revisited it now all these years later and be like, oh yeah, this is kind of like an unsung masterpiece, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I said, like, I was kind of very curious to see, like, when I sat down to read it in prep for this episode, like how Clive Barker was going to tackle George A. Romero. Because, like, I will admit, and I very, I, I feel very ashamed about this as a horror fan, I still haven't read any of Clive Barker's work. I've seen his other work in film form like Hellraiser, Nightbreed, and Lord of Illusion, and also, and of course, like all the other adaptations of his work that are out there, like Candyman and all that. So when it comes to his literary work, I I'm pretty much a noob when it comes to <laughs> that stuff. But that being said, though, like I think one of the things that intrigued me was, again, how is he going to tackle Night of the Living Dead, like putting his own spin on it? And the fact that this story is set in London and is centered around the royal family definitely was very intriguing for me as a reader. What are the, I will say this. I got a lot of, knowing just like the kind of vibe that Barker brings to a lot of his projects, like you, like you say, B, with it comes to uh, sexuality and uh, satire, religion and, and all that, like a lot of that is sprinkled throughout 
this story. And even though this is only a two-issue miniseries, like he tells a pretty compelling story that kind of makes us question again, like as fans of George A. Romero's work, he has that ability to kind of show that, you know, even though, yeah, the zombies are terrifying, sometimes at the end of the day, uh, humans can be the real monsters. But he kind of also shows like how within the story how something like an event like a zombie apocalypse can pretty much drive people crazy but then again even questions like did the apocalypse make them crazy or were they always crazy all along so that's kind of one of the interesting thing things here and also giving us a protagonist that is on when you start reading the book like you're very unsure about him because like he does some things that are incredibly questionable, but then you kind of empathize with him as the story goes along. And again, like Clive Barker has this ability to create these incredibly dark characters. You also understand what they're going through. And, and that was one of the things that I found so intriguing about this book. And of course the artwork in particular is amazing, like truly Mm -hmm. amazing. And also at times, like the artwork almost looks like it's on the verge of looking like photographs in certain panels and the way how they show how London is going through with the zombie apocalypse. It was just pretty haunting. It also has a lot of dark humor in there, especially when it comes to the royal family. And one thing I will say about this book, it's very clear reading it that Clive Barker really does not like the royal family (laughs) and is definitely not afraid to take the absolute piss out of them. So you got a sense of that throughout this book. And I think that's one of the intriguing things about it. But at the same time, though, it's kind of a shame, like given, like you say before, Trevor, that this was released by a very small comic book company. It's a shame that this comic book is not as well known, especially because you know, you always hear about other Clive Barker's work, but never really this one. And I, it is a shame because it's actually a pretty great read. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he is like, you just mentioned it too. He's even hitting on an idea here that he got to before Romero almost. Cause I know a big part mm-hmm. of Romero's land of the dead, which would be years after this is the idea of, you know, there being people in a post zombie apocalypse world that are just so rich and so out of tune with the world that they can ignore the problem, right? They just ignore mm. the fact that there's a zombie invasion. Parker's doing that here with the royal family, just saying like they would probably just keep trying to live their life, you know, and ignore the problems right outside of their their gates. And I think it's great that, you know, Barker got there first. And we keep saying Barker. We also, sh- I mean, obviously we should give Niles the, some credit here yeah. too. Oh, definitely, definitely. definitely. Of and, and my guess would be, judging by the timeline of this, I mean, this is even, this is pre 30 Days of Night. Steve Niles is a real up and coming um, comic book writer at this point. He's obviously gone on to be maybe the most prolific uh, horror comic book writer of this era. Mm. Um, my my guess oh, yeah. would be because Barker was just starting to work in the comic field around this time. I wouldn't be surprised if this was a story that Barker came up with and just came up with like the treatment, broke it down, mm. and then Niles is the one who translated that to a comic script. That I don't know for sure, but I guess that my, that would be my guess of Niles doing more of the nitty gritty about writing the panel breakdown and everything. But uh, but yeah, just the fact that that getting into that that satire and the attacks on the on the royal family. And I just want to quickly say <laughs> one more thing. You mentioned. The, some of the artwork looking like photographs. There are definitely are moments in there where they're using photography, in particular during mm. like the procession scene, and it's mm. they're 
doing like a cool like kind of collage element of taking actual photographs of what I think was the the die and Charles wedding uh, parade. Mm. And then like mm-hmm. kind of modifying it. So yeah, just really cool stuff. The, the artwork actually really reminded me of, I don't know if either of you thought about this, but it really to me looked like um, Stephen Gamble's artwork for the uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark yes. books. It yes, does. you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. And you know, it was funny though. Like I kept thinking like, oh, the artwork in here kind of feels like a precursor to what Steve Dials would do with 30 Days a Night. But now that you mentioned Scary Stories to, to Tell in the Dark, that makes total sense as well in terms of the art style of this book i guess the only way we can really talk about the insanity of night at living dead london um (laughs) is to kind of go through a recap of the plot but uh but if anyone is doesn't want to know what the plot of this book is and want to be surprised uh i mean it is it's easy to find if you're looking for it but definitely give seek this book out if you're interested in reading i mean it's clive marker and steve niles doing a night of the living dead comic book why wouldn't you want to read it <laughs> but uh we'll get straight into the plot the comic does start off in 1968 and we're on a plane that's going from jfk to london's gatwick airport there's a woman on the plane who is sick there are people all around talking about that things that are going on in the united states that people are being attacked some people believe that it's of crazed assassins who are attacking people and then we realize that the woman when she was on her way to the airport she was attacked and bitten by a zombie so she's getting sicker and sicker and then at some point during the flight she goes to the bathroom the flight attendants try to open up the the bathroom door get her to come out and feeling like maybe she might have fainted or has gotten worse they open up the lavatory and realize that she's now become a zombie and it is starting to attack everyone. Then the plane lands in London. Beforehand, the ambulance and everyone are there because they got the message about this woman who has fallen greatly sick on the plane. And as the plane opens up, zombies just spill out everywhere. From there, zombies take over London. Pretty much this is a war that continues on for the next couple of years, or 25 years, in fact, and it's been dubbed the 25-year war. We're transported to 1993, and we're introduced to our main character, who is also the narrator of the story, and it is uh, Archbishop Hallam. This comic book kind of starts off with a bag by having it set in 1968, the year when the original film came out. But then, of course, it kind of just jumps forward 25 years to where we are now, or at least where London is with the zombie apocalypse. So, B, your thoughts on this first section of the comic? Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic kickoff point by having it taking place in the canonical universe um, from when the film originally came out. And then you have that time jump into the 90s that there's something uh, very darkly banal about calling this, this conflict, if you want to call it that, that what is it, that the 23-year war? 25-year uh, war, yeah. 25-year 25 25-year war. Um, there, Like I said, there's something very banal about it because, you know, you have the 100 years war and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That seems to be a title just randomly given that there's no real uh, sort of thing attached to it. It's just, it's just really funny to me. And, you know, adding on to that, when you have the zombie apocalypse taking place over quite a 
a protracted amount of time in London. It's amazing that we still have like this religious institution in the form of of the of the bishop and you know that the royal family like the royalty as well as the church they're very closely intertwined like even now uh having it being narrated by the, this character who you know ordinarily is so so far removed from reality and you know here he is being dropped into this into the middle of all this and like you said he has the, the the guy is no saint whatsoever, and um, as as the story continues on, we find out more and more about him. But the fact we're in his shoes and we're empathizing with um, what he's you know what he's seeing, what he's doing, and how he's experiencing all this, it's very very fascinating. And actually, while I'm at this, just to add on to you know my own thoughts on the um the art style by by Niles, it sort of reminds me of daguerreotypes. Um, daguerreotypes are somewhat of a of a precursor of photography. There, there's a certain style to them, and you can see that in the panels. And I think that suits the 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 way the tale is being told because you know religion, you know the church, royalty. That's an old old institution, and having this art style somewhat reflects that. And yeah, just you know, this this was like the, the the kickoff point, and you know, from that point on, it's just like a roller coaster. Um, so yeah, it, it was a great first issue. Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, Trevor, your thoughts on the opening of the of the series? Yeah, you know what I what I'd actually forgotten until doing like a little bit of research on this over the past couple of days, and I don't know if you, this came up for you either in your research, baby. But the, it's just not only like a sequel to the movie, but more specifically, it's a sequel to a previous Night of the Living Dead comic that Fantico did. Fantico did a four issue adaptation of the the '68 film, but part yeah. of that adaptation was they also did first they did a, a zero issue called Night of the Living Dead Prelude which showed like the moments right before the movie starts. I remember having that as a kid and being fascinated by it because it revealed that like the Bill Hinsman cemetery zombie was actually the guy who was the farmer who owned that house that Barbara ends up at, which I thought was like such a clever idea. Like, oh, that's why he, you know, is still recently dead. He had, he had died in the house. He just fell down the steps and died and got up and, and ate his wife at the top of the steps and wandered off into the cemetery. And then they did the four <laughs> issues that were the movie. And then there was one final issue that they did called Aftermath which was showing a little stuff after the movie. And one of the scenes in that aftermath was the scene with a woman on a tarmac in the airport getting on a plane after being bitten. And mm. then that didn't really go anywhere until a few years later, Clive Barker did this book. So this is actually kind of like a direct sequel to that. And that was also, the artwork of that was done by Carlos Castro as well. So this is him carrying on and doing the art here as well. The scene on the airplane, if we're talking about just the beginning, that is so great because there's kind of, you know, every time we've all had the thought watching The Living Dead or other zombie movies with slow moving zombies where you, I know we've all done it. We would go, I could survive this, right? That's actually very well in the, in the remake of The Living Dead, the idea of like, I could just walk past them. I'd be fine. But the idea of being stuck in an airplane with a zombie is actually super mm -hmm. terrifying. And a few movies have done like zombies in an airplane and it's never as scary as it seems like it should be. But it's actually really oh, yeah. scary here. Like the artwork, uh, the, the the moment she attacks and you see like the, you know, and like the, the scene with like the pilot telling them, no, I'm sorry, I can't open the door. You're just, you're all, I'm sorry. I just have to let you all die back there. Uh, just really, really, really well done. So yeah, definitely opens with a bang. And yeah, and then like the, the idea of jumping forward 25 years was great because- at this point, the, the, this is 19, what, 93, this book came out. So yep. this is still, you know, this is a completely pre-Walking um, Dead world. 
there are some zombie apocalypse things, but now, right? Like, oh, the complete wasteland of the world and like what is left when there's only a few survivors. And I love that that's that that got to be part of it. And then getting to have the whole thing with the, the royal family, uh, seeing them as the only survivors and how insane that would be. And yeah, I think and the the I, I don't talk more about this in, in regards to like the whole thing. But the decision to have the Archbishop be the narrator, Bede, you already kind of uh, uh, spoke to this a little bit. Mm. What The question right away, whether you should like this guy or not, whether you want to, him to be your hero, I think it becomes very, very clear very early on as he talks about why he goes off in these missions uh, into the city, <laughs> what he's trying to do. And I think it's just a, a very, very uh, already morally complex in the early pages. So, Oh, definitely, definitely. So pretty much the kind of from here, it sets up more with Archbishop Hallam and his relationship with the royal family. You also learn information that the United States, France, Spain, and Germany have all fallen to the zombie plague, and everyone is holed up at Buckingham Palace, but mostly the royal family. Also, as I just stated before, Trevor, that Archbishop Hallam and he and a couple of his uh, men, they go out for drives among the city in this kind of built up like a limousine that has like cow catcher and also like machine guns on it so they could take out zombies. But the real reason that he is out and about on the town is because he is looking for young men to uh, take back to the palace and uh, to have sex with. So at first when you kind of hear, cause in the book, he just mentioned young boys and I thought, Oh, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go down this route. Are we? But then you see, he picks up a young man who's clearly a lot older. So we don't know the age of this character, but he looks a lot older. So I'm just assuming, okay, he is just picking mostly young men. Who And the young man is, uh, based on the paddles, he is very gorgeous looking, very model-esque. And he's also a mute as well. And he's about to be attacked by zombies, but Hallam and his men managed to save him. So, and they take him back to uh, Buckingham Palace. Hallam, of course, is keeping the young man a secret, so the royal family and everyone else don't, doesn't realize that he's there. So again, mm -hmm. like you are introduced to this character with very, doing things that are incredibly questionable and very wrong, and you think, oh, okay, this guy is going to be like one of our villains of the story. But Clive Barker and Steve Niles kind of subvert our expectations with the story when it comes to this character. So. They were introduced to the royal family. Now, they're not the royal family per se. Like, they all have different names and everything, particularly the Queen Mother, who goes by the name of Florence, and, of course, the prince named Prince Randolph. But it's very clear. Um, you know who they are. <laughs> exactly, because <laughs> que the Queen Mother Florence looks exactly like Queen Elizabeth. And also, there's a character, I believe, is meant to be Randolph's mum, who looks exactly like Princess Diana. So it's definitely not subtle in terms of how the characters are presented in the book. Who are they based on or partially based on, even though they use different names? So the Queen kind of suggests, given the zombie apocalypse is going on, they need to continue the bloodline. So they've decided to uh, marry Randolph off. So they send word out to any royals in the world that are still alive to see if any princesses are willing to marry Prince Randolph. And I and and again, it kind of these scenes <laughs> kind of show how out of touch the royal family in this book is. But again, it's the satirical elements that really work within this story. Again, like. 
it, one of the things that we know with the royal family, like in real life, is how it's an old institution, they're out of touch, they're set in their old ways. And the fact that Barker and Niles kind of skew that within this story, just to show how even more out of touch they are within this zombie apocalypse, thinking that everything's all fine, there's not a problem, if we continue our bloodline and humanity will be fine, despite the fact that at any given moment that any of them could die. So they get word that Princess Sarah Marie from Norway, she is interested to marry the prince. So they set up a Christmas wedding. So basically this comic book has just come around the time of Christmas. So this is also, this is a partially a Christmas episode or late Christmas episode. <laughs> and then we kind of just get introduced to more of the characters and learn more about them. But I also love the dialogue in this section as well, especially from Queen Florence, who has gr- some really interesting, <laughs> really funny lines through it too. And like Prince Randolph, of course, asks uh, Queen Florence why he needs to marry, why he needs to marry. And basically uh, the Queen is like, to fuck you, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so... There is a lot of uh, great moments in these scenes, particularly learning more about the family and uh, also learning more about them. They're also, even though, yes, they're a very religious family, uh, they very much hate Catholics. So they're pretty much, you get a lot of that in this uh, book. They decide to, again, to show how out of touch these characters are, they decide to let everyone know about the wedding. We'll send invites via carrier pigeons. And I'm like, you're in a zombie apocalypse. What? (laughs) And, and it doesn't oh shock me at all. <laughs> exactly. And then later in the, when the carrier, only two of the carrier pigeons come back and basically uh, with notes saying, no, they're not going to attend the wedding. And pretty much like Randolph is like, ah, oh, just kill all the pigeons. Like he's that upset by the whole thing. So there's a lot of dark humor in these scenes with the Royals. And of course we get more stuff with uh, Archbishop Hallam. And his, his and how he feels about the whole situation, and this is where the section of the book where we kind of understand this character because he even starts to think like this isn't a good idea at all. Starts to think like, yeah, I think the royal family are completely nuts. Uh, B, your thoughts on this section of the book? Hmm. Yeah, um, going back to the whole idea about uh, Hallam being this very morally ambiguous character. Um, it that's what I really do like about how Barker has approached this character. I mean, yes, he's done some downright very, we keep on saying this word, questionable things, but that's pretty much the, the baseline sort of thing. But another thing is there is no such thing as uh, heroes and villains in most stories. Like, remember uh, the character of um, Bill in Night of the Living Dead? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you first meet the character, you think, oh my god, this guy is such a raging asshole. Like, he he's the bad guy. But the more you think about what this character is, like, all about and what he's trying to say, you go back and think, huh, this guy actually does have a point. Like, he's not strictly you know mr baddy baddy same thing can be said about a uh, hallam like he's this he's not somebody you're supposed to necessarily like but in terms of his experiences and how he approaches the world and you know this character work of him sort of realizing 
finally that hey holy shit the royal family are completely out of the fucking tree it's uh you have that that connection with the character because in a sense we are the character of uh hallam at least in some respects like obviously Mm. very few of us are exactly like him in terms of personality and our past and what we've done but this realization and um how he's beginning to understand the way the world is it's a really really cool dynamic that, that's what i really like i love characters that you're not you, you're not quite sure about but nevertheless you find something to be drawn into and um i think that's the difference between himself as well as the royal family like you i don't think you're, you're supposed to empathize at all with the royal family like those guys mm. that they're completely just out there but then you have the anchor of hallam and yeah it's 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 a very cool dynamic seeing this dichotomy between like two very different parties and the fact that he's once again he's part of the church like it's just a it's a weird sort of um uh revelation that you (laughs) revelation that that you come to when it comes to like really connecting with this character Definitely, definitely. And also, like, during the course of the story, at, when all the events are going on, he also has a bit of a crisis of faith as well. Yes. Which is, it just yes. adds a lot to it. But, uh, but Trevor, your thoughts on this section of uh, the comic? Yeah, I thought a lot about, while reading it, about, like, our relationship with Hallam as the readers. And I, I do think, at first I wondered, was it just Barker doing, which I know a lot of horror authors like to do this, was it just to challenge us, right? To say, can I make mm. you like an unlikable character? Mm. Can I make you be on the side of a character who would be a villain in another story? And maybe that's a part of it, but I actually think what, what B was getting to is kind of more dead on of saying... He's used as almost a symbol to say, look how fucking crazy the royals are. If they're so crazy that you start to sympathize with this guy, (laughs) because even he is like, oh, my God, these people are out of their minds. That's pretty telling, right? When the... The, the pedophile uh, clergyman is the one where you go, ah, but he's kind of right about what's happening here, right? They're so out of their minds because you're definitely right. You're, you're, de- you're right. They're, you're definitely not supposed to empathize with the royals in this at all. It's actually to also to me very telling that he does include Princess Di as one of them. At mm-hmm. least it's not exactly Princess Di. Like timeline wise, that wouldn't even work, right? Princess Di would not have become part of the royal family if the zombie invasion had started in 68. Um, so it's not her, but obviously it is her visually. And I was thinking, well, that's very interesting because you know, even in, in, in general pop culture, Princess Di is kind of considered the good one, right? The, she, yeah, like, one not of the part better of ones. The insanity. <laughs> yeah, like not part of the insanity of the royal family. And I think maybe Barker, including her, is even him saying like, yeah, but once you get swept up into the royals, it doesn't matter if you're the good one, right? You've entered this insane institution. They're all insane. They're all a problem. There's no good to be had there. And in fact, they're so bad and they're so out of touch and they're so the type of people that would make this uh you know only about themselves and not the better of all of humanity and the post thing then you're still yes. gonna end up sympathizing with a character like hallam so i think that's kind of the move here and like it's almost like their insanity and their pure evilness in ignoring the rest of the world's problems and only being worried about their bloodline is what starts to redeem helm as a character despite his almost irredeemable past and i think that's a really clever move oh definitely definitely and from here the wedding is getting under prepared is getting prepared it's going to be happening on christmas day and also at the same time hallam knowing that uh the young man that he has picked up is going to be discovered he decides to basically dress the young man up in butler clothes so he so he looks like a member of the staff but then we kind of realize that there's some very strange behavior with the young man like again he's basically mute and he doesn't really talk much other than saying 
one word and all that. And most of the time, it's just him copying what uh, Hallam is saying to him. And then also we see him in scenes by himself where he's uh, using makeup to fix up his face. And also at one point, he even shatters a mirror after looking at himself in it. So again, we're kind of like, okay, what is up with this character? But we'll find out soon enough. And another thing too, I love how the artwork kind of just shows the insanity of the story because there was one image in particular that really stood out for me is when you have one of the Buckingham Palace guards, like in the full garb with the big hat and everything, in a cage surrounded by zombies and he's just standing there doing what those guards are, just standing there not reacting to anything at all. And it's just little touches like that I found quite intriguing. So Princess Sarah arrives by helicopter and the wedding is underway and we get a big kind of few panels of the wedding party as uh, Randolph and Sarah are being carried along in a wedding carriage and there are zombies all around them and all the guards are shooting them off. And again, it kind of shows how out of touch the royal family is, thinking that, oh, like if this were not a non-zombie world, this would just be a crowd of pe people loving them and excited for them getting married. But the fact that they're all zombies also kind of says a lot as well from Barker and Niles within the story. Oh, so yeah. There's a great bit of a <laughs> bit of metaphorical stuff when it comes to that. And then, of course, they get to uh, Westminster Abbey. The ceremony is underway. And, of course, we get a lot from Hallam about this whole wedding and he even says at one point that he didn't realize that this wedding pretty much was the beginning of the end of everything. Then we go to the wedding night of Prince Randolph and Princess Sarah. They try to have sex, but Prince Randolph can't seem to perform. So he pretty much leaves and she's very upset by this. But then during uh, the night, uh, Hallam's uh, young man comes to the uh, prince and princess's bedroom he knocks and she's just there totally naked she tells him to leave but he doesn't she's like oh well princess sarah <laughs> and the young men had sex with each other and um and of course it's just like the sexual elements that clive barker who puts it a lot in these stories is definitely very prevalent in this story as well and also we're introduced to king james who is show throughout prior to this book is sleeping a lot which i found quite hilarious every time he's in scenes with the other members of the family and we also see him at the gate trying to open it up not realizing that they are zombies and he, and we kind of get the feeling like he maybe is possibly has dementia because he's forgetting everything and then uh hallam comes over and tells him oh they're not the people they're uh nazis so we get a bit of an image of that we find out later in the story with King James is that he has actually been faking his illness and he knows exactly what's been going on. And even he is starting to be delusioned by everything that is going on with the royal family. So in a way, he and Hallam kind of form this bond together since they kind of share the same feelings about this whole situation. So Hallam later comes back to his room and he finds that the young man is gone. So he's very upset by this. So he decides to go, as he says, shopping once again to find a new man to bed. He and his uh, servant, Lewis, they get into the car, they go driving around. And at a certain point, the wheel of the car gets punctured and they crash. And that sends the gutter flying. And then he dies on the concrete. 
So knowing that the zombies could be here at any moment, Lewis tries to change the wheel as fast as he can, but then the zombies swarm them. Lewis tries to fight them off. Hallam gets into the car, starts it off and drives off and leaves Lewis behind who gets <laughs> killed and uh, consumed by the zombies. <laughs> Again, kind of showing more of the, uh, the sort of the morally gray areas of Hallam as a character. So we find out like in the months later, Princess Sarah and the young man are still having that affair. Then it's announced that Sarah is pregnant. So the royal family are excited. But then, of course, like Sarah just like says, like, how can the prince think like the baby is his? Like he and I have still have not had sex this entire time. But then we realize that Prince Randolph very much is aware of Princess Sarah and the young man's affair and actually has been in the room on or at least on the balcony this entire time watching them. He has been aroused by the whole affair. So he suggests that Princess Sarah, the young man, and he have a freeway. Basically, he starts off as Denny from the room at the beginning of this scene and then pretty much decides to join in. It's just, again, the, like the weird, like insane sexuality of <laughs> this story. But uh, Trevor, your thoughts on uh, this part of the uh, of the comic? Yeah, I mean to backtrack a little bit because you covered a lot there. Uh, the mm. the entire like wedding procession scene is for me the highlight of the entire two mm. issues, um, mm -hmm. in terms of like the dark comedy we talked about. Just the idea of like why why do they still feel they have to go through this? Right, the, it make poking fun at that traditionalism of the royal family. I don't really know like what like I don't know what the relationship is with the UK royal family in Australia for you, but I know here in America mm. we definitely have like the the, the Americans who to me are way too obsessed with like the royal family and will like whenever there's a royal wedding everyone gets up really early to watch it here. I'm like what are you doing? Who cares? It's just a wedding, you know, and and just the over extravagance <laughs> of those the royal weddings. And this is I mean so seeing Barker and I. Uh, just completely mock that with like, oh, they would even make sure to do their their wedding procession through a zombie infested wasteland, and you know, and just treat them. And like you said, like it, there's a double meaning there, right? The the people are just zombies, but also the way the royal family are just kind of mowing through them and shooting anyone who wander so close. Like they're only interested in themselves and and their tradition. Uh, so I think that's like the funniest part of the book. It's also that's the scene we talked about where they are incorporating actual photographs and doing a really cool kind of like montage mm. thing of Carlos Castro doing his putting his artwork over the actual photography i love those i love those imagery man there's so many splash pages in these books that i would love to just have as like framed prints on my wall um and, and these were definitely some of them and yeah like it's very very interesting the 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 king character is very interesting once you start to realize like as you said he's almost like <clears throat> the most pure character in the book because he has mm. the same concerns that helm has but he doesn't necessarily we're not at least you know we we can kind of sense it's a part of the royal family he probably i'm sure barker has a fairly cynical view of him but we're not told anything dark about his past whereas with helm we know stuff is dark about his past so we're almost more on the king's side but he's also like he's powerless to do anything about it because of his position and because he's looked at as just a doddering old man. I thought that was very, very interesting. And I know we'll, we'll talk more about the the kid, you know, uh, Helm's young man as we get to that twist, but as it starts to be insinuated here, what's maybe going on. And, and you said that the twisted sexuality of it with the three way and everything, uh, it, it starts to become very, very intriguing. I don't, but I, even like I said, I'd forgotten the book completely and I did not see it going where it goes when I read it again this time. That the twist that's coming up soon was still pretty surprising to me. Uh, so, so good on them for that too. <laughs> and uh, be your faults. Oh yeah, uh, just to dogpile further on to the whole uh, 
royal wedding procession. Honestly, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In all honesty, uh, every time there's a royal wedding or as we saw this year with the coronation, it was basically much ado about nothing. Like people were absolutely like lapping it all up. They, they were hungry. They couldn't get enough of it. Seeing the, uh, the, the splash pages in the comic and just seeing all the zombies, like it reminds you of like seeing all these people on the television as the um the the, the royal processions are, are going by, like during the, the live coverage. It's like, good God, you have what what's the difference? What is the difference between humans and zombies in that moment? And mm. I think with uh with all the, the cynicism that the Barker brings, I think it is completely justified. Once again, this is something directly out of what Romero's playbook would have dictated. Absolutely. It's a pitch-perfect commentary on how these sorts of events are treated by society, like even now. And moving into um, uh, the the king, I, I was wondering whether or not he was based on um, who was a Prince Philip, the, the Queen's husband. Like I, I yep. think that might have been the inspiration. Mm-hmm. And um, I think so. Yeah, with what Trevor was. Yeah, with what Trevor was saying with regards to um, you know how his character actually ends up being. I mean, Trevor's absolutely right by saying, you know, what what does King do? Like, he has absolutely no formal qualifications when it comes to, like, dealing with the zombies. Like, to him, it's just an, another case of survival. And the fact that, you know, ba- basically the rest of the royal family are looking down upon him and underestimating him, and therefore they have their own narrative about, you know, who he is and what he does. I, I think because of that, that's how he's been able to survive, like, all this time. Like, he he's putting up a facade sad but deep down he knows what's going on and he's doing what he can to like you know hold on without losing his mind of course and then you have the uh, the menage a trois between the, uh, the 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 prince the princess and and the butler like you know that that's classic clive barker like it's just it's it's darkly comedic and it's also quite erotic as well it, it sort of reminds you of um going onto i don't know red tube or something like you, you have all this this all, all these like pornographic titles and you know you'd be hard pressed not to find that sort of situation among them <laughs> so, so we, back through all of that it, it's scandalous as all hell but you know what we have stuff like that in real life like fictionally and in reality and it's it's, it's just have um well remember what we were saying earlier about how you know this this comic sort of like predated land of the dead with Hallam like abandoning lewis the way he did i mean that reminds me of um dennis hopper and um his driver was it his driver at the end of land of the dead and so, um yeah. The, the, yeah yeah and um you know you, you have this sort of moments like oh well fuck it you know <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I i'm doing this for me you know that sort of thing because once again you know what's what could you do in that sort of situation like mm. um as cowardly as it is you know what 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 else could Helen have done realistically that would have resulted in both of them living you know mm. that there you go yeah, I, I, I loved like all, I, you know, I, I loved all this comic, but you know, you have all these nuances as as we're going through it and sort of like um discussing them and um you know rediscovering them. It's it's all very very fascinating to like have all this stuff come back to you and it's like oh yeah, you know, this is this is reality <laughs> in all honesty, isn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, from here, in terms of the story, because we're getting to the last section of the book. Uh, then we have a scene 
uh, Hallam uh, confronts the young man and wonders what's been going on. Why has he been disappearing on him? And also he discovers the makeup. And then during the fight, he discovers a revelation about the young man. Now, it's not spelled out in any way. It's kind of hinted at. And then from here, we find out that the narration that we have heard from Hallam throughout the entire story is him writing everything that has been going on in a notebook because he is now at his at the end of his sort of spiritual and ethical crisis as a human being and he just can't seem to take it anymore also while this is going on king james uh commits suicide so which is very tragic and so uh bishop hallam has decided to you know what this is the end we might as well get it over and done with so and it in his uh in his notebook he's he writes a passage that pretty much like says us, so the story, this life must stand with the same words again. Beauty has always been my downfall. Don't, I don't want it to be yours. Good night and God bless. So pretty much he, in a way, kind of blames himself for what is about to happen. And uh, so he goes down to the gate. He kills the guards and opens it up and lets the zombies come in. As you would expect, the zombies storm Buckingham Palace. Hallam quickly gets torn apart. While this is going on, Princess Sarah goes into labor and she is attended by the young man. And also the also King James comes back as a zombie. They storm the palace. The Queen and the rest of the royal family hold up in a room. But King James, the other zombies come bursting in and quickly kill everyone. Then Princess Sarah delivers the baby. Then <laughs> the young man carries the baby out to the balcony, lifts it up into the air for all the zombies to see, and we realize that the baby is also a zombie, and then we find the, the big twist of this comic is that the young man, from the very beginning, was a zombie all along, a different kind of variation on the zombie who is not quite all the way full zombie and not quite humans, kind of in that in-between area, and uh, infiltrated the royal family and pretty much destroyed them from within the inside. And it kind of clarifies everything about the character throughout the story. Why the character's wearing makeup? Why did he smash the mirrors in the bedroom? And also why he doesn't speak because, well, he was dead the entire time. So it was actually a twist that kind of, comes out of nowhere but again all the hints are there throughout the story and the story ends with the zombies taking over bucky and palace and that is where ends b your thoughts on the final ending of this book but also your final thoughts overall on the comic itself Okay, so when the zombies storm Buckingham Palace, like to me, it's like simultaneously, you know, something of um, like a, a Schadenfreude sort of uh, victory for us as readers, especially as cynics of the royal family. But then you realize, you know, one royal family is gone and now another one has taken its place with the, the, the delivery of the child of this like this um this new baby of a different like species of zombie it's just like once again in land of the dead you have these zombies who are gaining intelligence who are evolving and eventually they're going to become just like us it sort of reminds me of another story of um you know i am legend uh with uh like the vampires are basically the ones that have become the humans and the humans have become the vampires like it's very much like a a role reversal sort of thing 
And um, yeah, it's once again, it's a case of the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, um, you know, on that note, uh, Clive Barker's Neither Living Dead, it's um, London, that it's such a perfect comic book story. It's it's extremely creative. It's very socially conscious. It's very much with what George A. Romero would have done. But as you said, it still has Barker working within his own lens. It's like a perfect amalgamation of two of these creators coming together. And, you know, you have this product. And I absolutely freaking love it. And uh, Trevor, your uh, your thoughts on the final section of the comic, but also your final thoughts overall on the comic itself. Yeah, I'm really glad that Land of the Dead was just brought up because I was kind of thinking the same thing where we, we mentioned earlier, like Barker kind of uh, getting to some elements before Romero even did. One of them just talking about the idea of the rich ignoring the problem. But even with the character of the young man, this is him getting to an idea that, you know, you can say Bub was the the first acknowledgement of the, the zombie starting to gain intelligence. But the idea of this some kind of other zombie that can talk and is almost like part human, part zombie, that's something Romero himself wouldn't get to until his own comic work, which would come later on. Indeed, you and I will, will talk about this eventually. Mm. Um, it's something he never d- dove into as much in the films. But in the comics, Romero explored this idea himself, the idea of like smart zombies that can talk and are more human but Parker got there first, right? And it's it's kind of perfect because, as we said, by this point, it was clear to us that Romero's allegiances and his loyalties were starting to shift towards the zombies. You see that as you move into day and then especially into land, right? That uh, Romero started to see that, like, yeah, the good, this is supposed to be, this is cleansing the world of the problem. Humans are the problem. And hopefully the zombies will be the next better society. <laughs> and Barker is already uh, alluding to that here. If, you, if you're creating a world where the humans are clearly the problem, as the royal family so clearly represents here, then and you're talking about this weird relationship between the living and dead. Maybe the perfect form is a merger of those two, right? Someone who's half human, half zombie. And that's when you realize, wow, this this young man was actually the hero. Great twist. I had forgotten all about it. And I think it just brings the book to such a, a clever, uh, kind of beautiful close that, uh, I mean, it's weird to say beautiful close when the last image is this ugly little zombie baby. <laughs> but uh, I love the imagery of him holding up a zombie baby, almost like Lion King style and all the zombies cheering it on <laughs> as their as like maybe potential new king. Uh, what, a, what a great final moment. Yeah, this was, I'm so glad you you suggested this one, being that I was able to revisit it. Because as I said, even I, as someone who'd read it in the past, had just forgotten about it. And it really is, I think this is one of the better pieces of like Night of Living Dead ancillary media. This is a great, you know, there's not too much Night of Living Dead ancillary media that first of all comes from another undisputed horror master. I know like Stephen King has written a story set in like the Romero universe and mm-hmm. there's a few other things here and there. But to see like another just total pro well, two, really, with Niles, again, I, I don't want to forget Niles either, to see two kind of other horror masters come and put their clear spin on it, but still honor what Romero brings to the table in terms of the satire and the pure horror. And then you add on this, like, haunting, beautiful artwork. I just love this. I think this is I, this is something I think definitely any Barker fan needs to track down, any Steve Niles fan needs to track down, and any Night Living Dead fan needs to track down. This is, this is a, a huge winner. Oh, definitely, definitely. Like, for me, like, the ending of this story is just extremely well done in how it kind of wraps up the plot and also where the characters go and also just as both of you have already said just how basically the zombies are basically the next stage of evolution and again this is something that Romero himself would continue to go down with the next couple of films in the Living Dead series for my final thoughts overall on the comic I thought this was a great read Again, like talking about it with both of you has made me even appreciate it even more than I did before. I mean, I already did appreciate this comic, but talking about it with the both of you has definitely 
maybe realize just how great of a book this one is and the fact that it's so little seed and that not many people know of it is a shame because i think if you're a fan of barker's work or romero's work or niles work definitely give this one a read and this is Clyde Barker putting his spin on the Romero zombie formula while also working with an up-and-coming writer with uh, Steve Niles, who, of course, later down the track would also be a huge name himself. So the combination of these three working on this one story is really compelling. Like, it has its own sensibilities. Barker's trademarks are sprinkled throughout all of it. And it also has a very British feel to it as well that I really loved. And, of course, the satire is great. Like, the... And also the thematic elements are just so interesting as well. So yeah, I definitely suggest everyone to check out Clive Barker's Night of the Living Dead London if you haven't read it yet. Now we'll move right along to the next comic book miniseries that we'll be talking about for this episode. And that of course is the 2004 free issue miniseries, Night of the Living Dead, Barbara's Zombie Chronicles, that was written by Mark Cadell and Joel Moen. If I butchered your last name, please forgive me. It was illustrated by Mark Cadell. And the plot summary for this one is told primarily through flashbacks to the events immediately following Night of the Living Dead. Barbara Zombie Chronicles tells how Barbara escaped from the horde of flesh-eating ghouls at the farmhouse and hooked up with a band of survivors that have fortified an elaborate compound. Now, again, like Night of the Living Dead London, I'd never heard of this comic book series until literally a few months ago so i'm going to give a shout out to uh rebirth director uh roger connors for suggesting this comic book for me to do on the show because i would not have known of it if he didn't suggest it to me and i thought it'd be a good pairing with this and a night of living dead london and having read both comic books back to back um the amount of similarities between the two of them uh was a bit of a surprise but we'll get into both of that very shortly. Trevor, your initial thoughts on Night of the Living Dead, Barbara's Zombie Chronicles. Um, <clears throat> this is definitely a, quite a different experience than Night of the Living Dead mm. London. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I've read like a lot of these Night of the Living Dead books and there's like some high highs and low lows and I don't want to get too into, you know, there's, there's things I liked about this and things I didn't, we'll get into all of it. But I do think this one, like to me, represents a little bit more of some persistent negatives I see in the approach. Mm which people take to uh, Night of the Dead comics, in particular, some of the stylistic uh, decisions that are made. I just think this one is, it's goofy in a way that I think is, undercuts the horror a lot. Um, that's cool. what I'm, I'm interested to, to, to talk to you about, whether you agree with that. Like, I think there's some goofiness here that makes it, I not even like ironically funny, but just like is really like taking away the power of what they're trying to do. Also, I guess I'll just say this now. I, I could like say that this is my overall thought, but I'll say it now. The idea of making Barbara the main character in this—I'll just give my my preview of this idea. I don't—I don't know if I'm—I don't understand why that's the, the why that needed to be done. Why it's about Barbara? Why it's Barbara Zombie Chronicles? Other than the kind of cheap legacy sequel move of wanting to have a character from the original in it, but I think mm. the characterization of Barbara we get here is so different from the Barbara we know. It almost seems like unnecessary. So I'm I'm curious to hear what you think about that and if you agree. So uh, that this is like, I, I can't say that to me this one is as enjoyable as Night of the Dead London. I think this falls into a totally different category, but I'm looking forward to talking about some of the decisions that are made here and some of the stylistic moves of it, including the art and, and some of the storytelling. 
Oh, definitely, definitely. But uh, B, your thoughts on Night of the Living Dead, Barbara's Zombie Chronicles. Hi, um, cool. just uh, just to cut the, the podcast short a little bit, they're starting to come in and they're, gonna, about, they're about to make a lot of noise. So, um, yeah, this would be the perfect time for me to get going because you're just going to be hearing like drilling and shit. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I don't hear anything at the moment, so it's all good. Okay. Um. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Well. Once again, I have to reemphasize. Thank you so much for having me on board. This was so much fun. And Trevor, mm-hmm. it was it was a pleasure to meet you. It really was. Yeah. It was yes. nice to meet you. Yeah. Hopefully, yes. we'll get to do another one of these at some point. So. I hope so too. <laughs> Uninterrupted <Definitely>. this time. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you so well, much. Well, Bye. Well, th- well, thanks, B. But before you go, <laughs> before you yeah. go. Where can people find you on the internet this week? So, <laughs> oh well, uh, <laughs> well, um, if if you are at all curious, and I don't, I, I don't understand why, you can find me on uh, social media under Beatrix Harper on Facebook. You can also find me on uh, Twitter because I refuse to call the other name uh, under mm-hmm. Daya B Five. It's all like a one thing, and um, yeah, I also. Uh, I'm also quite present on uh, Instagram where you can find me on uh, Corinthian Engram. Thank you very much. <laughs> no worries, babe. Well, even though I could, that's all right. Um, hopefully they'll be quiet on your end. So we, we, you can, we'll bring you back on another episode very soon. So. No worries. Thank you so much for understanding. That's all right. Well, we'll see you later, babe. Bye. See ya. Bye. And uh, Bye. we'll continue on with well, the I hope she's, I hope, I hope when she... I hope when she says when they're coming in that she's not talking about zombies. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> well, I hope not either. So we'll we'll make sure that I, I will message B after the episode to find out okay, what's yeah. but we shall continue um with yeah. this uh <laughs> this episode. And I'm leaving this all in because, you know, why not? Oh, yeah, um, of course. But uh I guess my thoughts on Barbara Zombie Chronicles. Again, like I the only thing I kind of knew about when I sat down to read this book was of course that it, it does follow the character of Barbara in the years yeah. after the events of Night of the Living Dead. So I will admit though, I do I did enjoy reading it, like because but at the same time, I could definitely see why most people would not get much out of it. And in a way, I do kind of agree with the criticisms of this book. Mm-hmm. Like, like it doesn't really do anything too new in terms of how it approaches the zombie genre within its story. But at the same time, though, like, it does have a lot of fun elements. It's interesting to kind of see where the character of Barbara has been in that time. But that being said, though, this to me, though, and I want to hear your opinion on this, Trevor, is... That it kind of feels to me like this one was kind of going more of like, if this was a movie, this would be more sort of like an exploitation type of comic yeah. book series uh, compared to something like uh, Night of the Living Dead London. Totally. I was just about to make that comparison as you're talking about that, because I was thinking that's exactly like Night of the Living Dead London feels like a real piece of horror media, right? Like a real piece of horror artwork. And then this feels more like a goofy movie. You know, this mm. and if you're right, if this is a if this is a movie... This is the kind of movie, and I know you're into this, this is the kind of movie you would do on like a shitty movie night with your friends. You can get some mm. beers and some pizza, 
and be like, okay, let's let's check this out. And there's a lot of those, obviously, that are connected to Nothing Dead. And this so maybe this fits in the grand tradition of it. I do think this takes some like swings that are so wild, particularly mm. in, in the final issue, that that's kind of what makes it memorable. Ultimately, I mm. don't know that those swings are necessarily that they feel like they're it, <laughs> that they're justified, but it is what makes you remember the series, and that's what I'm looking forward to talking about those. But one last thing I'll say on this on this conversation point, you mentioned it being exploitative. That's actually what what I was alluding to earlier. There's for some reason, and you're, you're going to find this as you read more of these, B, and as you read more of the ones that I've read in the past. Mm-hmm. For some reason, there's this real tendency of the Night of the Living Dead comic franchise, and this is even includes when um like a company called Avatar started publishing Night of the Living Dead comics later that John Russo was actually heavily involved in. Mm-hmm. There's like this this impetus to make them very um exploitative in terms of like nudity in particular and sexuality mm-hmm. to have a lot of like the the women drawn naked or are you know very very scantily and. And like this fits right into that. And I've never really understood that because that's not at all the vibe of the Romero film. But whenever it's thrown into the Night of Dead comics, I always feel like it's out of place. And even like the way Barbara is drawn in this and the way she's presented in the artwork, everything about it has like an icky feeling to me. And I'm not, a, I'm no mm. crude. I just feel like it doesn't, it feels out of place in this franchise, if that mm. makes sense. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So I, we might as well get into the plot of this comic so basically it begins with a recap of the events of the original 1968 film with barbara and i like how it does recreate some of the moments from the comic book and as this is going on there's a splashes of wording that says they're coming to get you barbara over and over and over again and then uh we realize that it's actually a dream sequence and barbara wakes up on a base and again this is where the kind of you i kind of knew exactly where what type of comic this was going to be because when barbara wakes up she basically is wakes up similar to like wearing what uh ellen ripley wore in the (laughs) in the first alien Mm -hmm. film where basically it's just like very small panties and also just like very short crop top Mm -hmm. i kind of just saw that image of barbara and i'm like okay now i see where the story is going to go but one of the things i found interesting though and i'll you could we could talk about this in a minute is like i could definitely see having this story take place within five years after the events of the 68 film but the way how barbara is portrayed in this story to me it would actually have made more sense to make this comic book more as a sequel to the 1990 remake where barbara is kind of that sort of ellen ripley style of character because having that in this connected to the 68 film it really doesn't make sense within um how her character is portrayed in this one so but other than that we're also introduced to the other characters within the story who are friends of barbara like derek linda rufus and the one who she's more closest to alexander she of course barbara of course is dealing with the trauma of what happened in 1968 and that's kind of the thing that still plagues her many years later and we find out that they're all living in a base called the Mick, and this is where a good settlement of people are living together away from the zombie outbreak. We kind of introduced other characters, and we discovered that uh, Sheriff McCullum, who was the, a character in the 1968 film, has a statue in the middle of this base. And I'm just thinking to myself, where did people find the time to create a statue of McCullum in mm. this um mm in this world and particularly we get a flashback about 
uh, what happened to Barbara? Because we find out that after which she's pulled out of the house by Johnny, she manages to grab a plank of wood and starts killing zombies around her. And then, of course, later she meets up with McCollum and then finds out asks him that about what happened at the farmhouse. And then she finds out that everyone who was there is dead. As Barbara's kind of wandering around the base, she runs into a little girl named Sarah. So that's kind of our first connection to Neither Living Dead Love That Is This comic also features a character named Sarah as well. So basically, from here, uh, Barbara and her friends, they decide to go raid a local supermarket so they can get more supplies. And once they get there, we realize that the uh, the supermarket is called S-Mart, which obviously is referencing the Evil Dead films. So Barbara and the others, they go check out the supermarket. They pick up some supplies. At one moment, Barbara is almost attacked by a zombie. However, though, uh, she is saved by a man who has been hiding out in the supermarket, a doctor by the name of Dr. Peter Cook. And they have a bit of a conversation because Barbara thought that he was about to shoot her, but he tells her, of course, that uh, he was just there to save her life. And then we find out that he is actually part of a research team from DC that was actually studying the zombies. And we'll go into more of how so in a moment, but pretty much this is our first section of the free issue series. So uh, Trevor, your thoughts so far on uh, the comic? I I think you're exactly right that you're getting to now my other problem with this comic, and that is the characterization of Barbara. So not only Mm. am I kind of thrown off by the over-sexuality of the character, you already alluded to that too, in terms of the artwork style of always having Mm. her, you know, in this small little tank top, and she's drawn very busty, and it's Mm. it's always just drawn like very, very uh, sexy. And I think that's weird in general, but also... You mentioned how this is more of a Barbara from the remake, and I, I completely agree with that. And this is the thing. I, I listened to your episode, obviously, about the remake, and you 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 and your guests discussed this. I've, I've never really... I like the remake fine, but mm. I've never necessarily been a huge fan of its reinvention of Barbara. I prefer Barbara in the 68 original, and I know mm. there's some controversy or debate about that. And I know, I, I believe, I've always assumed that Romero, especially as he started to have more and stronger and stronger you know, women in his films... He started to feel a little guilty maybe about his own characterization of Barbara in the original. And I never really agreed with that because I'm more in the camp that Barbara's reaction in the 68 film of going kind of catatonic after watching her brother get murdered feels very, very real to me. And I think her being just this like object and the way the men discuss her and treat her as an object is still as is still a commentary on misogyny in a way that it doesn't need her to become this this Rambo-esque character as she does in, in the remake. Um, so I was never really a huge fan of turning Barbara into that in the remake. I felt like Barbara was a great character already in the original. And I thought just the moment where she finally finds her strength at the end when she sees Helen being attacked, that's enough for me. So this like drastic reinvention of saying, yeah, by the way, after she was pulled out of the house, she became a total badass. And now since she's like this commando character, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And I think between between that, like the double-edged sword of reinventing her as like a commando and then also, but then also sexualizing her so much, mm. it's like you're, you're not even like, you're not really paying tribute to what you're trying to do with the character anyway. So it's a weird kind of um, disconnect there. You mentioned the sheriff's statue. I did think it was funny how muscular the sheriff looked in his statue, <laughs> which is not at all Definitely. what the sheriff looked like in the movie. It's a, it's a very like, you know, macho version of the sheriff. So yeah, it's like, you know, you're, I, it's just to me, wonder why this even had to be Barbara. Because after there's, there is one moment I actually really like in this, in this section where you mm. see her kind of having this survivor's anger 
where she's like cursing like the world she lives in and she even says like screw you ben screw mm-hmm. you everybody like and she's like even mad at ben and you get the sense she's almost like mad at ben for dying yeah and leaving her like with no one in the book but other yep. than that, there's nothing about the character journey she takes over these three issues that feels like it needs to be Barbara from Night of the Living Dead because her story mm. feels like it's done. It's done that night. Um, mm. So that's that's kind of where I took it from. But I did love, hey, I always love a good S-Mart reference. And, uh, you know, and I said the, the sheriff statue made me laugh at least. So, you know, there's a couple things in here that uh, got like a, a smile out of me. <laughs> oh, definitely. And uh, as they are all heading back to the base, Dr. Cook kind of explains what he has been doing over in DC because he was part of a of a team where they tried to find out where the outbreak came from. So it kind of reveals like a couple, quite a lot of information in the scene. It's pretty much just a major expedition dub in this yeah. section where we find out that satellite, which we assume at first is the same one that's kind of briefly mentioned in the original film, but... Yeah, the uh, Venus probe, yeah. Yeah, the Venus probe. But it's... More, a little bit more than that because uh apparently something that it crashed in roswell yes that roswell in 1947 and it was taken to area 51 just mentioning that you can kind of already get the hints of where this story is going to go but we'll get to that a little bit later so they basically spent the entire time doing experiments on it and finding out because of that satellite the dead have been returning to life so they've been trying to figure out exactly what is going on but also to try to figure out a cure for it and we kind of get a lot of interesting information on how the zombies work because we kind of and i'm reading off this off the official uh fandom page for this comic so i don't get anything wrong (laughs) so basically essentially it's um they kind of learned that there's a severe depletion of serotonin in the body as well as a slow gait and vacant gaze were the result of uh, fibromyalgia uh, their reaction to bright lights is a result of septo-optic dyslasia. And if I said that wrong, please forgive me, which resulted in confusion and the ability to recognize fire as a hazard. So they basically, dev- he and his fellow scientists devise a serotonin booster, which they hope would make the zombies agitated and basically turn on themselves to kill. However, as we all know in stories like this, it basically backfires after they <laughs> set an entire room of the zombies with the gas of the of the chemical. And basically the zombies took over the base and started killing everyone. But not only does this make the zombies more agitated, it actually in- heightens their intelligence as well. So after hearing all this, uh, they get back to the base and they realize that the zombies have now taken over the base and we kind of get a big the final panel the first issue is kind of similar to that scene in the film version of world war z where the zombies basically Mm -hmm. stand on top of each other like ants and basically try to climb over the giant gates to get inside so it's kind of funny like between night of living dead london and also this comic book it's kind of referencing things that would happen later on in zombie films so Barbara and the gang, they go off and hide off in the woods for a little while. Barbara wants to go to the base to find any of the survivors. The others don't want to because they believe everyone is dead. Barbara is just not taking any of this. She needs to find out if anyone's alive. So they manage to uh, get to the base. They wander around. 
most of the, the base is deserted except for the zombies which they kill and they manage to find the missile but the door to that is completely locked they manage to open up and they find that there were survivors inside but knowing that there's no hope left all the survivors um shot and killed themselves every single one of them men women and children and so this traumatizes barbara she even contemplates probably killing herself as well but then uh she hears a noise and she looks up at the statue and the little girl sarah who we saw before is alive and hanging on there now that the town is all cleared of the zombies barbara and the gang try to figure out exactly what to do they discovered that sarah has been bitten barbara plans to go to the compound where dr cook is from to find the possible cure to the zombie plague in hopes of saving sarah's life of course the others don't want to do that because it might be too dangerous so they just but barbara is insisting upon it so reluctantly the gang agree and so they head off on their journey to head to the compound so this is pretty much again the in this section of the story we're finding after everything that is going on, we see the characters go on their journey to find the cure. So Trevor, your thoughts on this section of the comic? Yeah, it's like, so to me, there's not much very interesting happen here. Although I did, Mm. I did have that exact same thought you did when I saw the visual of the smart zombies, like creating like kind of the the wave up against the wall. Mm. I actually had a moment where I thought to myself, is there any possibility that the makers of World War Z read this comic beforehand and like that's where they <laughs> took the inspiration from? Because obviously that was considered like the big like revolutionary thing in World War Z, right? It was like we'd never seen that before. We'd never seen that kind of zombie swarm before. And then here it is in this Ooh. comic, which came years before. But I, I find it hard. I, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that the, the the makers of World War Z read Barbara Zombie Chronicles. But who knows? You know. <laughs> um, but. They raised that idea. First of all, you you mentioned just too, you kind of made fun of it. How dumb do you have to be to be like, we have this like compound full of zombies. Let's give them something to increase their aggression. Hopefully they'll just hurt each other. They won't turn on us. Come on, guys. You know, it's hard to feel any sympathy for these characters when the zombies turn on them and, and just wipe them out. But it's it's the kind of thing, too, where I think the book mentions the idea of them being smarter zombies other than them creating that swarm. And, and we see they found a, they find a way over the wall. I feel like the book just is kind of paying lip service to that idea. We don't see very much done with the idea of smarter zombies. You know, I wish there was a little bit more in the book about that uh, in terms of maybe watch seeing them, you know, drive or something or, you know, operate machinery or find ways to trick and trap our heroes more often. So it's just the kind of thing that's, it's again, it's, uh, I think this book raises a lot of things and then just kind of quickly moves on. I did think it was interesting that they came up with actual scientific rationale for the zombies. You mentioned mm. that too, like the, the fibromyalgia element and the serotonin. That was kind of neat. And I, I, I give mm. them credit for someone sitting down and thinking about it in a biological sense of like what maybe be what's maybe causing the zombies on a, in a, on a biological level. So I, I, I liked that. I'll give credit where credit is due. But yeah, I, I just I, I think the the idea of smart zombies isn't there isn't too much done with it. And I think the other thing that's sinking this section for me a little bit is Barbara's gang is not as fleshed out as characters as I wish they were. You know, when oh, we yeah. first meet them, when she first wakes up from that nightmare, she gives us like a one kind of sentence description of each character. And it's like and like, oh, one of them used to be a writer and one of them is like my rock, the person who is like my best friend. But we don't see those personalities play out enough in the book to care about them as characters. So they really start to feel like interchangeable cannon fodder. And that's, you know, that to me, I'm like, I'm always very character driven, character first kind of person. And I want to care more about these characters. So as we know, we're going to start losing them. I, I know which character I'm losing and they feel a little too interchangeable to me here. 
Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And also, yeah. I get it. it. I mean, like you say, it's interesting that the Mark Kidwell kind of goes into the scientific rationale about the zombies. Like you say, it is pretty interesting, and I got to give him yeah. credit for that. And yeah, going that cool. really in depth with it, to the point where, like I said, it's almost like an exposition dump as well. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. From here, though, while they're on the bus, they get to a highway, but it's all chock-a-block with cars, so they can't get around it, so they decide to go on foot. So they make it to a little port, and they decide they're going to take the boat the rest of the way. Laura, she goes to get supplies from a little shop that's nearby, and then on her way back, she gets stabbed by a zombie, and then, of course, Barbara kills the zombie, but it's too late for Laura. And Laura tells Barbara, shoot me so I don't turn into those things. So Barbara does. And then uh, the gang get onto the boat and they go across the water. So they're on there for quite a while. And then at some point during the night, they come across the outline of a boat and a barge. And as soon as they get closer to it, they realize that there are zombies on the barge, quite a number of them. The, The zombies jump into the water and now the boat isn't working. Barbara goes to check on the propeller. A zombie jumps out, grabs her by the arm. Rufus goes to save her, and then he gets pulled over instead, and it is attacked by them. Rufus is then killed. They manage to get the boat going, so they continue the rest of the way. They make it to land, and they get to Arlington Cemetery. They find that there's a crypt that actually has a secret door that leads down into the compound. They go downstairs. Then we get then we see the satellite itself, but we realize that it's not actually a satellite. It's actually an alien ship that actually crashed. And then as they go through the laboratory, Barbara has passed out. She continues to have more nightmares. <laughs> and I find that funny that this comic book actually finds a way to have a nightmare within a nightmare sequence like they do in movies because she dreams about uh the gang being turned into zombies and attacking her and then eventually she wakes up and then they go to a laboratory they go to the infirmary with sarah dr cook administers uh the, the experimental serum to sarah in hopes to heal sarah so she doesn't turn into a zombie However, though, uh, Alex and Derek... Now, is it just me, or does a- Alex look exactly like Tom Savini in this comic book? Yeah. Because he... It, I don't think it was a coincidence at all. But um, the two of them start talking about Dr. Cook, and they find something very sus about him. Like, there's, there's something not quite right about him. Uh, Dr. Cook uh, needs help with something, so he asks Alex and Derek to come with him. So he takes them into a room... Cook sort of tells them a bit more about what happened with the alien spacecraft. And then we realize that, uh, and they discover hooked up to a couple of machines is an alien. And the reason why the zombie apocalypse has going on, because something was attached to the aliens. And whenever they become, they become ash, they get up into the air. And basically (laughs) that is what has caused the zombie apocalypse. Because not only we find out about this alien, there have been other crashed aliens all over the world and that have been doing the same thing when they those aliens die. They <laughs> this is really ridiculous so far. Uh, pretty much like their 
bodies like the <laughs> yeah the dust it's hard to describe what's going on in the scene essentially basically like the particles from the aliens go up into the air and that is what has caused all dead bodies across the world to come alive as zombies so uh trevor your thoughts on this insane section of the uh of the <laughs> well, comic well, before I get to that, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit to talk about the barge sequence. Yeah, I, I do. Like I said, I, I'm overall well, not somewhat. I'm overall negative on this whole book. But I said I wanted to give credit where credit's due, and the things I do like. I think the barge idea is actually really cool. The moment where they realize that oh, some people put all these zombies on the barge and just set the barge off to say like you know that'll take care of our problem. They'll just be floating down this this river, and we don't have to worry about it. And which would have worked, except that a, a boat full of humans happens to bump into the barge. Now, I don't know the practicalities of how they got the zombies onto the barge. You know, the book mm. kind of does just glosses over that. But I thought that was a really cool idea and a cool visual. And, it, and it's a nice little action sequence. Like I said, I'd be more invested in it if I was worried about these characters and if I cared about them. But the visual of it and the idea is neat. We we you One thing you didn't mention in, in your, in your um, storytelling and I, I don't for, I don't blame you because there's a lot to remember about this book. But you mentioned how once they get to the compound, they start to think about Dr. Cook being maybe kind of sus. But that kind of starts to become apparent throughout the, the journey, too, because we always see him kind of leering at Barbara. And there's even like a really this again speaks to like my uncomfortable feeling towards the sexuality of the book and mm -hmm. how it treats Barbara. There's a moment where she's holding the little girl and talking to Dr. Cook and the panel, like the, the art, the artist, well, Kidwell is the artist, right? He specifically yeah. draws it to show how her shirt is riding up as she's holding the little girl and you can see Barbara's nipple. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was just like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, and I like I was like, oh, no, no, no. And it's but that's it's, again, showing how Cook is like leering at her. But I just wish it wasn't there. Um, but you start to realize pretty quickly, oh, Cook is like lusting after Barbara. Right. So you can kind of see yeah. that element coming. Now, the alien thing, obviously, we need to talk about that. Yeah. Y you know, there's a reason there's a reason why Romero, after the first movie, decided to forget about the Venus probe and even said in, in later years that he regrets even throwing that into the first movie, you know, and why. Ooh. From Dawn of the Dead on, you know, it's just, uh, well, I don't know. Who knows? You know, the, maybe hell's full, whatever. I'm not going to give a definitive answer. And I think that's always been a real power of the of the Living Dead series. And I think whenever, obviously, because anybody can do what they want with the Living Dead, that's why you have this podcast. And maybe yep. comic books are a great place to explore that because there's no pressure on it. But when you decide to come in and say, I'm going to give the answer... I think if there's no there's no inherent problem with telling a story where an alien invasion causes um, zombies, other than the fact that mm. you're you're automatically making me think of Plan Nine from Outer Space because that's that story yeah. essentially. But uh, but other than that, like if you're going to tell a story, I think you're only doing yourself a disservice and shooting yourself in the foot by making it a sequel to Not Even Dead and saying. I'm going to make, I'm gonna, I have this idea that zombies created the aliens. I'm going to put Barbara in it. I'm going to call it another Living Dead sequel because now you're making me think of another Living Dead. You're making me think of how Romero never wanted that question answered. Mm. And you're giving me a really ridiculous B-movie sci-fi answer that feels so incongruous with like the overall franchise and even kind of incongruous with what you've done in your first two issues. This is a hard pivot from issues one and two into issue three, which suddenly goes full alien monster movie it just feels so different it, it really almost i don't know if this is the case but it almost feels like i don't know if this is originally planned to be more than three shoes then suddenly he can only do one more issue and he's like ah screw it aliens i don't know you know and just and just decided to go crazy but that's kind of how it reads 
like I said, I'm not opposed to aliens. I'm not opposed to alien horror, but I don't know that it fits in the Night of the Dead world. And it's, but, but as I said, it's such a goofy leap that it's going to be what I remember from this book. So I guess I can't criticize it too much in that degree. Like I think it's a, I think it's bad, but it's also bad in a way that I'm going to remember. So maybe that he, knew, maybe he knew what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. And but also we got to remember the, uh, we do still have the final twist. Of this comic book coming. Oh, I know, yeah. Which, which Don't we'll worry, get to. I have stuff to say about that too. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll get to that momentarily. But uh, yeah, so as uh, Cook, Alex, and Derek are in the room with the alien, Cook sneaks out of the room and locks both Alex and Derek in there with it and basically unleashes the alien upon them. So Cook goes back to Barbara as she's there trying to comfort Sarah. Cook goes to check her vitals and, she, and they find out that Sarah is dead and of course barbara is upset by this cook goes to hug her and uh cook uh licks her face and then <laughs> barbara of course is not impressed by this at all but then cook manages to grab one of her guns and just tells her and to take off her clothes but then we find out more about dr cook is that he was the one who actually unleashed the gas on the zombies and made them smarter. And the reason for that is, is that there was a woman on the base he was in love with, but she didn't feel the same way about him. And uh, and there was also another soldier that he felt threatened by, and he felt that this soldier was the one who was taking her away from him. So he ended up getting them both killed and also we do get a little bit of a paddle earlier in the comic book from dr cook and i sort of noticed in the panel with those two characters in the background they kind of looked like francine and peter from dawn of the dead and they even they kind of fly off in a helicopter so i don't know if the comic book is kind of suggesting those were the same characters as well I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but I mean, I I, had, I kind of just got the feeling that that's what the comic was trying to hint at this scene. Dr. Cook is now obsessed with Barbara, gets her to remove her clothes, and she eventually does, only just removing her tank top. Obviously, we most of the scenes are either with her back towards us, uh, her boobs are covered by something, so we don't actually see them. Yeah. Again, this is where the It's like an Austin Powers movie. Exactly, exactly. And this is where the sort of the exploitation element comes into play. But then all of a sudden, the alien comes smashing through the wall with Derek and Alex, and both of them have now been killed. Barbara manages to kill the alien very quickly. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, like, she goes to shoot Cook, then she's out of bullets, and then Cook, I guess, grabs the second gun, but then Sarah has come back to life as a zombie and attacks cook and saves barbara so barbara manages to find a code and make her escape and so she runs through the compound she finds a train platform in the base so she gets inside turns on the train and then she zooms out of the base and then she gets to the end of the line and then she finds the way out she gets comes out of a small little shack and then she realizes that she's actually at the White House. And there's a bunch of other characters there, including a guy who is wearing a mask. And she wants to know what is going on. They welcome her. And then the guy takes off his mask. And major plot twist, uh, we find out that the man who is now 
proclaiming himself as the new president of the United States is Charles Manson. <laughs> that is where the comic book ends with, like Night of the Living Dead uh, London, the end, but with a question mark. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was like, what? Like, again, I thought like the <laughs> twist of the, of the young man in London being a zombie this entire time was a twist. Th this one just came out of nowhere. It is obviously there for kind of shock value. But Trevor, your thoughts on the, this last half of the comic book and as well as the twist that the US president is Charles Manson. Well, I, I did have to laugh. I'll get to the Manson thing in a minute, obviously, but it, to just get to it, uh, get to it first. I, I didn't I didn't even pick up on what you said about I'll have to go back and look at that. I didn't pick up on the uh, the chance that the two people that Cook had known before were Francine and Peter. That's probably a, you're probably right. That's probably a good call, which I didn't even pick up on because I was actually just thinking the moment where Cook says specifically where he point where when he's talking about how he was in love with this woman she left him for this like soldier and even then says like that black bastard or something that felt like so ugly to me like mm. to me and i was like oh are they just doing the cheap thing of making him racist to make us hate him even more but we already hate him yep. so it just felt like unnecessary and and again like kind of icky but again like you said it, maybe yep. it just speaks to the overall exploitative nature of this book um yep. but if that was specifically supposed to be calling out to peter then maybe that makes a little bit more sense i don't know i just didn't again the moment made me feel uncomfortable I did have to laugh when the alien bursts into the room. And uh, if you're paying attention to the story, you realize that Barbara has not at all learned about the alien thing. She was not there for that whole exposition jump. She didn't see the alien, um, yep. but she just accepts the existence of the alien immediately. Like she is not like, what is that thing? She is not horrified or blown away by an alien suddenly coming to the room. She just like, is like, I have to kill this thing. So I thought that was very, very funny as well in a, in a cheap storytelling convenience way. Let's just yeah, let's just get to it. The the Manson shock value twist at the end, as you said, it's it's so ridiculous. It it catches you off guard. But I will say, it did make me like I actually liked it more than the alien stuff, and Ooh. only in the sense that it made me think like you know what I didn't love this book. I didn't love Barbara Zombie Chronicles, but boy, I, this kind of made me think I would actually want to read a comic or a short story about what happened to the Manson family during Night of the Living Dead, right? That's not the worst idea in the world. You know, like the the, the thing about them taking over the White House and declaring himself president is like goofy and again in a B-movie kind of way. But what then you think about the timeline, you go, oh yeah, Night of the Living Dead 68, that's when the Manson family was around. That's when they were operating. So that if this happened, they would have had to deal with it. They would, you know, they're on Spawn Ranch. That's a perfect place to hole up against a zombie invasion. It all of a sudden clicked in my head where I'm like, this is a great story. Why is nobody doing this movie or why is nobody making this comic book? I actually would read the Manson family versus zombies. And it's, so it's like that one last panel almost makes to me that last panel made me wish that was the book I was reading. So when you get the end question mark, I was actually like, oh, you know what? I would read the sequel to this because that's not the worst idea in the world. Charles, uh, you know, I, I've never been a fan of that whole like mythologizing of Charles Manson that our culture has done. Yeah. But I still think he's obviously interesting enough. And that's an interesting enough premise for a book, especially since, as we said, with Nothing Dead London, you are able to tell these stories where the humans don't have to be heroic, where we don't have to sympathize with them. We don't have to like them. Um, you can you can actually draw attention to the fact that, like, maybe the zombies are who you root for in that story. Maybe it's a point of like the zombies are they're just nature. Right. But Manson mm. is something different. That's that he that's a different kind of evil. So evil versus evil in a, in a different way. So, yeah, mm. actually, as goofy and weird as the last page was. It was the one time where I was like, oh, Kidwell might be onto something here. This this idea has potential more than the alien thing, which I never felt uh, vibed with the rest of the book. 
Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I was kind of the same as well. Again, like I stated before, like I was just so caught off by the fact that, like, when we kind of see the guy in the mask and the way he talks, and I'm thinking, oh, they're, they're going to put in someone there. I don't know who. Like, I had a couple of ideas who it might be, but I kind of just assumed, like, it would be a character within the Living Dead universe. That's who I kind of assumed mm-hmm. it was going to be. I wasn't sure exactly which character, but I had a feeling it was probably going to be someone. When it's revealed that it's Charles Manson, I was like legit taken aback by that twist. I, I, and you're right. Like, I'm like, it's definitely there for shock value, especially for me. But at the same time, mm-hmm. though, I'm like, I'm kind of curious to see like a zombie comic book that has zombies up against yeah. Charles Manson. And then I kind of think about, because remember, like, the stuff with the Manson family happened around the time when, after when the film came out. So, of course, like, it would make sense. All that stuff didn't happen because of a zombie outbreak. So, of course, why wouldn't Charles Manson decide to take over the White House and then basically want to become the new president of the United States? Uh, so uh, that made me very curious to see where the story would go. But, of course, it kind of ends on that cliffhanger. And kind of, at least based on the information that I have read so far, there really hasn't been any other follow-up comic books to this series even though it's called barbara zombie chronicles which kind of again hints like oh this is going to be an ongoing series but they only kind of did just uh three issues and that was essentially it i don't know whether it's a case where it was always intended just to be a mini series or maybe it just wasn't selling very well so they just basically decided to kind of just end it on yeah. that kind of cliffhanger or even just wrap up I the story s- quickly i could see that even like the, the naming convention made me think like would they have done a second miniseries called charlie zombie chronicles right where then you see mm. where you go back and tell like the story of how did manson get to the white house you know you could actually go back and fill that gap in and then do mm. like a final one that shows what happens next with charles and barbara but again it's not like there's nobody in the history of recorded you know humanity that ever watched not even dead and thought hmm, i wonder what would happen if barbara met charles manson <laughs> you know that's never <laughs> been a thought in anyone's head but that's like the unique element where you go like, okay, well, that's so bizarre that maybe, you know, it's like, you know, it's like Bruce Lee meets Dracula or whatever you were like, I don't know why it exists, but maybe that's more interesting to me than, than everything else you're doing here. The other thing too, and you were kind of alluding to this too, it makes you realize that, oh yeah, like, and I think we know this on a certain level, but if the zombie invasion happened in 68, then it completely changed, you know, we're getting a multiverse talk now, right? But yeah. it's it created a new historical timeline for us. And suddenly all the historical events we know of the 70s and odd wouldn't have happened because instead humanity mm-hmm. was dealing with the zombie invasion. So it did actually make me think that's kind of an untapped market in all these like Night of Living Dead, like unofficial sequels and retellings and short stories that you're looking at and talking about is I wonder why more people don't do that and say like, what happened to actual historical figures that we know of in the years that followed? Like what did, uh, you know, if those people went on to exist, how did they deal with zombies, right? How did Jimmy Ooh. Carter end up dealing with zombies? How did Ronald Reagan deal with zombies? You know, all these people from like later decades. That's actually kind of an untapped thing to think about, which again, so that's the potential that you see here with the, the Manson page at the end. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it, it, again, it just like op- that ending kind of opens up all these different possibilities of where the story could go. But the fact mm-hmm. that in the end, it only just ended up being just a, just a free issue miniseries is kind of a little disappointing because like you say, yeah, the alien stuff is like kind of okay, but stuff with, with Charles Manson, like, yeah, I kind of want to know more of this story. I want to see where 
this goes yeah. or yeah because like again like you say it does open up the possibilities of this kind of revisionist history of like a zombie apocalypse happened in 1968 all the big major historical events and figures that would come out after that like how would they deal with something like this and yeah it's definitely an intriguing possibility maybe one day other comic writers or novelists or filmmakers might do something within that realm because again it opens up so many possibilities but i do give credit to uh this comic book for at least uh giving that memorable of an ending to uh this series i guess i could be a wrap on this conversation of night of the living dead barbara zombie chronicles and uh trevor your final thoughts on the comic overall yeah i mean it's it's not what i would recommend it's definitely not as like enthusiastic ethically as i would not living dead london this to me is just more like one of those like little oddities you know i said the the manson thing is interesting but it's also only a one a one page twist at the end which is like a clever Mm. idea that then is never really paid off any further um Mm. the alien thing feels out of place to me the unnecessary uh sexualization of barbara and the artwork and we didn't we didn't talk as much about the artwork and i i don't ever really like to be mean about art in general but i wasn't like i I wasn't a huge fan of the art style you know everyone's drawn with very large heads it's like a very everyone kind of looks like funko pops it's very cartoony looking (laughs) and i think that again i think that i think that undercuts the horror like the art style of london actually is like scary and creepy and this is so cartoonish that it never feels it never feels terrifying it feels more like a cartoon i don't know like uh do you know the video games like leisure suit from like the oh, 80s yeah. it kind of like oh, looked how... like that to me almost uh, yeah like, a, like... yeah uh, how could we ever forget leisure suit or larry which i yeah, do bring yeah. up so at that... least once or twice a year <laughs> yeah yeah that like that like big head look made me think of leisure suit larry and like yeah my like my final thought again is like beyond beyond like the the alien stuff and the sexuality i just I don't see the point of it being about Barbara because this character is so far removed from the Barbara we know from the movie that it feels un- it, it feels unnecessary to turn her into this kind of like dark Rambo character with like no feelings. I don't want to call it a betrayal of the character. It just feels unnecessary. Mm. And it's like a, a reclamation of any real point to. So I, I can't say I was a fan of this, but I think if you're someone who's just trying to read every Another Living Dead comic, and like you said, this can easily be found online too, or you're just looking to read a goofy like little zombie comic that throws in aliens and, you know, gore and everything. And, eh, you know, it's not, you're not going to regret the hour it takes you to read this or whatever. But overall, I thought this was, this was more of a miss for me. I wasn't really a fan. Yeah, I guess for my final thoughts on uh, Night of the Living Dead, Barbara Zombie Chronicles, overall, I thought it was an enjoyable enough read. Like, I didn't regret reading this one at all. But at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, though, it does, compared to other zombie comic books out there, like either during or what came after when it was released, it does feel very kind of generic as how most comic book writers or artists uh, tackle zombie films within those stories like like i said it kind of works best as if you kind of read it as more of an exploitation sorry an exploitation mm-hmm. take on night of the living dead like a sequel to that like it does have some fun moments and the art style i will agree is kind of generic it's like not all right bad but it is generic especially if you're comparing it to the amazing artwork in night of the living dead london but i will give this comic book credit it does throw in a couple of big swings in there that i did find quite interesting uh particularly with the alien stuff and also with charles Manson <laughs> at the end <laughs> but i think 
I agree. Like the the characterization of Barbara in this take, it's okay, but it is kind of a bit more two dimensional more than anything. Yeah. And but I feel like this comic book probably would have worked better if it was more of a sequel to the 1990 remake rather than the actual 68 version itself because at least Barbara's arc in this comic would actually fit in line with the 1990 remake since that kind of established that type of character in that film but making it more as a sequel to the 68 film it's just doesn't feel like the same character even though they try to kind of show that within the first couple of pages of the comic but yeah, you just don't really buy this Barbara just quickly being that badass of a character. And I'm not saying, like, she's a Mary yeah. Sue or anything like that. It's just, like, in terms of, like, how quick she goes from being a character who was mapped, who had this trauma and basically was catatonic throughout most of the story. And then, yeah, she has that quick change at the end of the film. Yeah, from that kind of characterization to this one in the comic book yeah kind of really i guess overall like it's an enjoyable enough read for what it is but in terms of where it fits in the world of night of the living dead it's just um it's not really all that essential or as memorable mm. as it could have been yeah i guess that could be a wrap on this episode of bead versus the living dead and thank you so much trevor for coming on the show and talking about both these comic books with me Oh no, thank you. This is great. Like I said, I uh, I've always I always wanted to I was always trying to think of how to do a podcast about Nothing Dead, and I love that you came up with this idea of visiting like all these like kind of ancillary spinoffs and unofficial reimaginings, remakes, everything. <laughs> well, you know, your whole spiel at the beginning. That's great, and I I love that you're you've given me the opportunity to join in with my voice, and especially in this world of of comics. And hopefully, we'll get a chance to chat about some more of them uh, in the in the months to come. Oh, definitely, definitely. Like, I definitely want to cover more comic books set in the, the Night of the Living Dead world in the future. Yeah. And as a comic aficionado like yourself, you're definitely more than welcome to come back for those episodes as well and any other episodes that are not comic book related in oh, the yeah, future. Yeah. So I'm glad you enjoyed your time on the episode. This was a fun discussion talking about both these very different comic books but like i said do have some similar elements to them as well so mm -hmm. which is kind of funny pairing them together but uh yeah so i guess that could be a wrap on this episode of the show and uh trevor where can people find you on the internet this week uh yeah you can find me like like we said earlier um, i'm gonna call it twitter because it's not x i don't care what elon musk says <laughs> you can find me on twitter uh uh, under uh, Trev3K. And you can also uh, listen to my podcast, Failure to Franchise, where me and my co-host Chris, uh, it's a bi-weekly podcast where we look at movies that were meant to start uh, franchises and didn't. So the, the failed franchise starters of the world, you know, um, and we try to do it in kind of themes where for like a couple months, we'll look at, uh, you know, we just recently looked at all the failed DC franchise starters through the decades. Um, we're heading into, as, as this episode is coming out, we'll be doing the three Punisher movies movies none of which Ooh. got any got a sequel you know so um yeah it's it's fun it's a you know in a world that today is so obsessed with franchises where everything is meant to start a franchise it's fun to go back and look at all the previous attempts to do that that didn't go right so what we do is we do a whole kind of historical breakdown of what the backstory is to the movie then we review the movie and talk about whether we think it should have started a franchise um so failure franchise check that out and and then find me on uh, twitter at trev3k awesome well i have listened to quite a number 
number of your episodes and it is a great show and I love the format that you guys are doing and I definitely recommend yeah. all my listeners to give your show a listen if oh, you like you. to cut yeah so for me personally if people want to find me out there on the internet you can find me via my twitter slash x page at twitter.com slash but you can also find me on blue sky under bejamine and as well as follow me on Letterboxd at Jemine. And as well as you can find all my work and all the other podcasts that I co-host with my friend Super Marcy on the Super Network over at supermarcy.com and as well as other podcast streamers everywhere. Like uh, the shows, uh, the Super Podcast, the Osploit Cast, the 2B Tuesdays Podcast, Podcasters of Horror, and as well as the King's Own Podcast. And in terms of this show, you can listen to all things Bede vs. The Living Dead and as well as its spinoff show, Bede and Steve vs. Camp Crystal Lake on all podcast streamers everywhere via the Bede vs. The Living Dead podcast feed. And also you can follow both shows on the official Twitter page at twitter.com slash BedeVSTLD and as well as Blue Sky under BedeVSTLD. And as well as look up the official Facebook page for on Facebook via Bead versus the Living Dead. So yeah, once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of the show. See everyone. Bye. G'day everyone, this is Bejamine. And before I officially finish out this episode of the show. I just have a few things I kind of want to talk about before the episode is done. First up, I want to thank everyone for tuning in for the podcast throughout the past year. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy that you've all been tuning into every single episode, whether it be this main show or the spin-off podcast Beat and Steve versus Cat Crystal Lake. Seeing all the downloads and the feedback and everything that has happened ever since the show the show first dropped back in October 2022, it's just really has warmed my heart as a podcast host. And I'm glad that every single one of you has enjoyed this podcast and has gotten so much out of it. It really means the world to me. Thank you to every single guest who has come on the show to talk about all these films, comics, books, musicals. And TV episodes are with me. I, I have absolutely loved it. And I once again, I'm deeply appreciative of that. And thank you so much for to everyone who has supported this show since the beginning. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is what is going to be happening with the podcast in 2024. Well, first up, of course, I'm going to be taking all of January off. So there will be no episodes of Bead versus the Living Dead throughout that entire month. However, though... Don't fret because there will be not one but two episodes of our spin-off show, Beat and Steve vs. Camp Crystal Lake. That will drop in January to kind of fill in the void until the main show comes back. So there will be a bonus episode of which uh, my co-host Stephen T. Bolts and I will look at the foreign rip-offs of Friday the 13th with the films Shrigala and Seven Sal Bard. And that bonus episode will drop on Sunday the 7th of January. And then on January 13th, that'll be the fourth episode of the main show of Bead Steve vs. Care Crystal Lake, in which we will dive into Friday the 13th, the final chapters. So there'll be those two episodes that'll be released in January. But in terms of Bead versus the Living Dead itself, the first episode of 2024 will not drop until 
Sunday, the 4th of February. But now you're probably wondering, now that I've tackled quite a lot of different aspects of Night of the Living Dead throughout these first 28 episodes of the show. What am I going to go to next? Well, I'm going to be still covering Night of the Living Dead because there's still a lot of Night of the Living Dead content across all media that I still haven't explored yet. So I'll be doing that throughout 2024. However, though, I'm going to take the podcast in a little bit of a different direction. So for the very first episode of the podcast on February 4th, I'm going to be going into another area of George A. Romero's Living Dead series, and I'm going to be looking at everything Dawn of the Dead. So for the very first episode back of Bead versus the Living Dead, which will be episode 29, that'll be on the original classic, that is the 1978 film Dawn of the Dead. So for all of 2024, there will be all, most of the episodes will be looking at all aspects of Dawn of the Dead, including its recuts and of course i'll also be looking at the 2004 remake of dawn of the dead as well which of course was directed by Zack snyder and written by james gunn so i'm very excited to tackle the original the different edits and as well as the remake of dawn of the dead however though i'm also going to be exploring the italian side when it comes to dawn of the dead I'll also be looking at its unofficial Italian sequel, Zombie 2, which of course was also known as Zombie or Zombie Flesh Eaters in other parts of the world. And of course, this classic film was directed by the godfather of gore himself, Lucio Fulci. And I'll also be looking at the sequels to that film as well. I'm also going to be looking at some zombie films that were released in other parts of the world that were retitled as sequels of the zombie series. So I'm excited to look into those. Now, in terms of Night of the Living Dead, if any new content on the film is released throughout the year, I will be doing an episode on it. I know that the Soska sisters, the directors behind American Mary, are currently working on their own sequel to Night of the Living Dead, which of course is Festival of the Living Dead, which, which will be a Tubi original exclusive. So when that film does eventually drop, I will be doing an episode on that. And if any other indie remakes or reimaginings pop up, I'll also do episodes on those as well. Those are all the type of episodes you're going to expect throughout 2024. And I'm very excited to dive into all these. So I look forward to all of you continuing this journey with me on all things Night of the Living Dead by going into the Dawn of the Dead side of the franchise. So now the third and final thing I want to talk about, and this is one that I'm, I have thought about doing for quite a while, and I thought, you know what, it's time to take the plunge and do this. So for the podcast, I am going to be creating a Patreon page for Bead vs. the Living Dead. Anyone out there who is a listener and wants to support the podcast, you can sign up as a subscriber and get some really awesome exclusives and episodes that some, which of course will be on the Patreon as early access before they are released later on down the line, like episodes of Bead vs. the Living Dead and as well as Beaded Steve versus Care Crystal Lake, and as well as any bonus episodes that are associated with those ones. And you'll get early access to those episodes before they officially drop. And also, I'm going to be doing uh, something else as an exclusive for the Patreon. And that, of course, is doing bonus episodes of which I'm going to sit down with 
a guest and talk about a random zombie film. So it's going to be films that are outside of the Living Dead series. So so we're going to be tackling some of the more well-known ones, but also some of the more obscure ones all over the world. So I'm very excited for those episodes. I'm very excited for these bonus episodes. I have a great list of zombie films that I'm very excited to talk about with, with any guests who join me. So that's one I'm also excited about. And also that I've been thinking about doing some really cool exclusive stuff that's only for Patreon and you can only access it there. There's a lot of great stuff I have planned for the podcast in 2024. A lot of awesome things are going to be happening and uh, and I'm very excited for it. So yeah, that's all the news I wanted to talk about for this little section of the podcast. Once again, thank you everyone for the support. It really means a lot. And uh, yeah, so that is a wrap for Bead versus the Living Dead for 2023. I'll see you all on February 4th, 2024, in which we will dive into the original 1978 version of Dawn of the Dead. Keep a lookout for the official Patreon for the podcast. Once it's officially launched, I will announce it on all the social media platforms of the podcast. So have a great and safe new year, everyone. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Feed versus the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.